Today's episode is brought to you by Melissa Broder's Super Doom, which brings together the best of Broder's three cult out-of-print poetry collections. When you say one thing but mean your mother, Meat Heart, and Scarecrone, as well as the best of her fourth collection, Last Sext. Featuring a new introduction from the author, Super Doom is by turns essayistic and surreal, bouncing between the grotesque and the transcendent as Broder gazes into the abyss and at the human body with humor and heartbreak, lust and terror. Says Daniel Lopatin, Broder has a virtuosic sense of herself and is able to convey, through poetry, the form of our whole mind process. In turn, we see our deepest selves reflected back. Superdoom is out on August 10th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm excited to share today's conversation with Callum Angus. Longtime listeners of Between the Covers know of my long-standing interest in how both storytelling and poetics could possibly engage with questions of climate change or evoke and enact alternate ways to imagine the human and the human habitat within the larger environment. And my own interest in this, as a person and as a writer, has been part of how I ended up having conversations with Richard Powers and C.A. Conrad, Natalie Diaz, Ursula K. Le Guin, Forrest Gander, Arthur Z., Ross Gay, Talia Field, and Jory Graham, just to name a few, to learn from them so we could learn from them in real time together. Which makes me particularly thrilled to have Callum Angus on the show, whose writing, both in fiction and nonfiction, explores the intersection of trans writing and nature writing. As I mentioned during today's conversation, the writer Tori Peters talks about how this sort of writing, Angus's sort of writing, feels like whether or not it is explicitly about transness, that it is written through a trans lens, which raises all sorts of interesting questions. What can writing through a trans lens reveal to us about the climate crisis? And for writers, what can writing through a trans lens show us about storytelling and story form? In this conversation, we talk about a lot of writers. And one writer who was particularly influential for Cal and this story collection was passed between the covers guest, John Keane, and his book, Counter Narratives. For the bonus audio archive, Cal reads Keane's short story, Manahatta. And this joins bonus audio from John Keane himself, reading his poetry from his out of print collection, Playland, and Garth Greenwell reading and talking about Frank Bedart. C.I. Conrad reading their writing on Ursula K. Le Guin, Matilda Bernstein's Sycamore reading from The Freezer Door long before it came out, and many other bonus audio editions. Currently, a little over 3% of listeners support the show. And in 2021, I'm hoping to bring this up to 5%, one out of 20 listeners transforming themselves into listener supporters. Have these conversations been something that have been useful to you with your own art making or your own writing? Have they helped you get through the pandemic or have they just been great food for thought? 
what better time to make the transition to supporting the show than during a long-form conversation about transition and transformation. There are many potential benefits. The bonus audio is only one of those benefits. Many past guests have contributed everything from broadsides to rare collectibles to entice you to consider becoming a Between the Covers supporter. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to check it all out and enjoy today's program with Callum Angus. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest writer, Callum Angus, earned a bachelor's degree in geography at Mount Holyoke College and an MFA in fiction from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. He has taught writing at Amherst, Smith College, and Clark College, among other places. And he's the founder and managing editor of the online literary magazine, Smoke and Mold, a journal that foregrounds the narrative possibilities that the lives of trans people and the writing of trans writers can bring to the fore regarding both nature and culture, capitalism and climate change. As they say in their editorial statement, smoke and mold are signs of what's coming and of what's been, of wildfires and floods gone by and still to come. Smoke and mold are pervasive. They linger and change the smell of things insinuate themselves into the tiniest of cracks and cause trouble. They will soon be more abundant in our air and more prevalent in our imaginations. Smoke and Mold is also, interestingly, a journal with a limited lifespan, with the aim to publish for 12 years, the amount of time allotted us by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Callum Angus's writing has appeared in Orion, the LA Review of Books, the Common, West Branch, and Catapult, among many other places. And in the anthology Kink, alongside such writers is Carmen Maria Machado and Roxane Gay, and co-edited by past Between the Covers guests R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell. He has received fellowships from Lambda Literary and the Signal Fire Foundation for the Arts, has been named Bainbridge Island Writer-in-Residence, and was writer-in-residence at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest. A former bookseller, fishmonger, barista, reporter, and advocate for the Trans Youth Equality Foundation, Angus has also worked in publicity for Catapult, Soft Skull, and Counterpoint. 
Callum Angus is here today to discuss his debut story collection, A Natural History of Transition Out from Autonomy Press. Madeline Moss for the Chicago Review of Books says, Progressing through the collection, the sediment of every trans character builds in richness. Layers of queer history pile up, jagged and dense. The accumulated layers reveal an intimate cross-section, each story a marvelous sample, filled with the glittering gradation of transition. Garth Greenwell adds, Callum Angus is one of the younger writers I'm most excited by, with a mind full of marvels and an ear to match. Every story surprises. Every sentence strives gorgeously toward music. This is writing as transition, as entrancement, as transcendence. Finally, Jordi Rosenberg says, How did we do without a natural history of transition for so long? Down with the medicalized so-called histories of ourselves, Cal Angus has written our history as something much lusher, more fantastical, and for that reason, more true. Welcome to Between the Covers, Cal Angus. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my. <laughs> well, I, I know this book began at least notionally as a nonfiction project where you were going to respond to accusations that trans identity was unnatural and that it defied the natural order of things by showing examples of transness in nature. And pardon my pun, but that seems like a natural response to the accusation. Just this week, C.A. Conrad posted about one of Britain's oldest trees, an ancient Welsh yew tree, that after 3,000 years as a male tree is now a female tree. And there are many examples, particularly among sea creatures, of male-to-female or female-to-male transformations. And if we're to look not at trans behavior specifically, but more broadly from a human perspective at non-normative behavior— Monogamy is certainly not a rule in, in nature, and homosexuality is, is quite common. In our closest cousins, it's been exhibited in all of the great apes and definitely in bonobos, which share more DNA with us than any other primate, tied with chimpanzees, who've also been documented with same-sex sexual encounters. But you ultimately decided that going this route was both problematic and not compelling to you. So I was hoping we could start here and maybe dilate that moment of transition, of you abandoning one frame for this project for another. But, but tell us also about what originally compelled you in looking for transness in nature, and then unpack a little bit some of the reasons why this didn't really ultimately feel like the right choice, either philosophically or artistically. Yeah, that's an exciting question. So... If I'm thinking about why I wanted to, like the original impulse toward looking to nature for these things, I mean, I grew up in a very rural area. I was always outside, uh, spending a lot of time in the Adirondacks, uh, which is very close to my home. Most of my life I have lived in, in rural places that is soon, soon going to be crossing over the threshold of most of my life will have been lived in cities. So I hope to get back to a space like that. But at first, the impulse was like, oh, when I realized I'm trans and I, I realized that this can apply to me, it took a little while to kind of 
situate myself in that and and there was never really any frame of reference for how to be trans in a rural area you know i i um began transitioning in a small city on the east coast and and that was very separate from the earlier part of it, of my experience and of my life and then i think when i started wanting to bring those two spheres closer together my trans self and also this part of myself that feels most at home in rural areas natural spaces um that was that initial impulse but it felt strange to be setting up that kind of encounter when already both of those things exist within me and so so there was it was kind of by by saying oh i'm a trans person and i'm going out and i'm seeking these instances in nature where i can be represented by you know whether it's uh, animals that that can change their gender uh you know chickens that can uh develop roost become roosters develop male characteristics if they're you know in uh exclusively female groups for a long time i love the example from cia conrad i hadn't heard that one before that that's great and I think on the scale of a tree, right, 3,000 years as one gender is, is a, that's a very different kind of equation than, than when we go looking for ourselves in the animal world. Um, and I'm not saying that these are bad places to look, but for me personally, that already felt like a separation of who I was just to find it somewhere else. And so I guess I wanted to kind of introduce some entropy and some fictional options into that and uh, keep the title A Natural History of Transition, uh, which is also a title, the title of one of the stories in that collection, the one that deals most with with kind of where I come from and the fictionalized version of my, my hometown. Um, and, and so keep that title so that it can keep those connotations like okay if you first hear the title a natural history of transition you think that's what you're going to get whereas i think both natural history and transition have very non-linear uh narratives that that make that make them up and so hopefully you know when you start the first page that becomes apparent because things are fantastical and there's people giving birth to strange monstrosities and such um i, I like the idea of, of thinking about moving from nonfiction to fiction as well and and relocating where is the truth in this um because i think as trans people i won't generalize but as a trans person myself there is an aspect of when you decide to transition you're kind of rejecting this nonfiction story i guess that you've been given about like how gender plays out um, your place in that and then you have to start making up your own story uh it's it's really much more intentional and for me at least a, a choice of pursuing that identity and pursuing that um story for yourself as opposed to like I was born this way, that kind of narrative, which has been important and, and yeah. leveraged by trans people and queer people for a long time. But I think we're now kind of starting to, now that that has been around for a while and it maybe hasn't gotten all of the like results um, in terms of being treated, you know, as human by the medical and 
political establishments, I think we're starting to see more artists play with that a little bit more. The play isn't really a serious enough term, like like try to interrogate that more and, and say, well, yes, there is a biology aspect, but also what is biology? And like, is that even really, you know, kind of taking a step back from that equation and saying, um, we're actually outside of this and you are too, right? And, and like we all are, these are, these are constructs. Um, so that's a little bit of kind of my thinking, I guess. Well, I want to talk more about this nonfiction fiction relationship, but before we do, just to stay a, a beat longer with this um, question of looking to nature and then not looking to nature necessarily, um, on the level of language, you've said that at first looking for correspondences in nature felt like it would really open up possibilities of metaphor but that ultimately you feel like it robs us of the power of metaphor by looking at nature this way. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about that uh, a little bit about, because yes, I mean, obviously we think, oh, these are natural metaphors. Um, these, these um, transitioning creatures. So tell, tell us why that might actually be something that closes down the opportunity for metaphor. I think, right, if we're thinking about looking to this animal, say a butterfly, right, caterpillar metamorphosis is, is the one that is most easily, most readily there for, for the metaphor of transition, I think. And it's one that I, I, I mess around with a bit in my stories. Um, but I think in saying, here's this metaphor for transition in this creature, in this animal, it kind of takes away the possibility of moving or the, the broader connotations of what transition can even mean. Um, you know, transition can be, be moving from one form of being to another, but it can also be moving across, uh, across space and, and moving between places. Um, recently, I've been thinking about it a lot more in terms of that. And just did a conversation with several different trans writers. Kamala Mackerel is a, is a Mauritian and Canadian poet and performer, and, and they use the term gender travels, right, and in moving across space and time, which I guess isn't to say that like a caterpillar isn't moving across space and time when it metamorphoses, but we're more focused on like how their body changes, right, and how it like dissolves into goop in a chrysalis and then reforms, which is fascinating. But again, it's so tied to the physical that I think grounding notions of transition in just the physical and the biological takes away some of its kind of philosophical and, and more exciting components to me. And it also ground, takes away, um, you know, not everybody who is trans is going through this sort of drastic medical transition. Uh, I have, but many people that I, I know and love and, and think write really interesting things on the topic of transition that's not even their main focus at all. Uh, and so I think, you know, in, in, in saying that it robs us of metaphor, it's more that there's a, there's a richer arena of metaphor available to us, not just in biology, but in art, in philosophy, in um, different realms of, of science and physics, right? For example, uh, phase changes uh, between matter um, and, you know, changes between um, different kinds of ecosystems that are like transition ecosystems. So I, I get a lot of like energy from thinking about 
the ways that transition can shape thought and matter as a whole outside of just this kind of biological resonance. Well, is that somehow related to the way you've described your writing? I think both your nonfiction and your fiction writing as exploring how nature is itself in essence trans. So a distinction between looking for transness in nature and nature essentially being trans. Uh, maybe you can unpack that distinction for us a little if if that rings true to you. Yeah, I know I've I've written about that in the past. And I I think I don't know if I still feel exactly that way. Because I think that, well, for starters, trans in the way that I think I have interacted with it for the last three or four years in my writing and, and thinking is a very Western concept and idea of what trans means um, in, in terms of like the, you know, setting it up and uh, moving from one binary gender to another binary gender from female to male or vice versa inside of these relatively rigid categories is something that is not universal throughout the world and is pretty specific to this Western American uh, uh, concept. And so, and then as I read more people who write from other cultures and other frames of identity and belonging, different two-spirit and indigenous writers who write about gender and nature, uh, that is being more complicated for me in that I think it's it's still true in the sense that nature is always changing. It's all about change, whether it's climate change or, uh, you know, one thing changing from something into another. Um, but at the same time, to say nature is trans, I don't know if I still believe, believe in that in, in the same way that I, you know, made that made that statement. A lot of my thinking about this is, is constantly evolving. Yeah. So, so which is, which is great. And, and I like that. Um, and it's a light, it's like a lot of your characters actually, who are constantly, uh, <laughs> constantly evolving. And I, I, I want to talk about that, but I want to, I want to return to this statement you made around fiction and nonfiction and the nonfiction story that trans people receive and then um, the creation of new story. The most recent time that Ricky Ducournay came on the show, a couple months ago, as part of my preparation for that, I stumbled across a book called Surrealist Women's Writing, A Critical Exploration. And it ended with a chapter by a writer named Christopher Noheden called Magical Language, Esoteric Nature, Ricky Ducournay's Surrealist Ecology, where he argues that there's a little talked about but very important strain within the surrealist movement that is ecological in nature and which Ducournay is a great example of. And this is what he was saying about her and the surrealists that um, she most would be akin to. Throughout these works, surrealists elaborate an ecological approach that rests on the subversion of anthropocentrism recognition of the intrinsic value of other life forms, speculation about non-human minds, and the construction of new models for conceiving of the world's interrelatedness, often through a dialectical relationship between occultism's worldview of correspondences and ecological sciences study 
of the interconnectedness across beings and their environments. But then more specific to Ducournay, he says, many of her resulting writings, as well as her drawings and paintings of flowers, roots, and seeds metamorphosing and breaking out of botanical categorization, call up a surrealist ecology equally attentive to the material world and to the ways in which dream and imagination may uncover new dimensions of the mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms. And then he says that our writing reveals the ways the interrelatedness of things is kept apart by the quote-unquote logic of identity. And this makes me think of you and your writing too, but also makes me wonder if not only a surreal, non-realist approach to humans and nature is a particularly well-equipped one, but whether, kind of like what you were saying, perhaps having abandoned, about nature being trans, I wonder if the real in and of itself, if we truly looked, is actually surreal. Yeah, well, clearly I need to read Du Cornet, who I have not read. So thank you for, for uh, bringing them into the conversation. That's really exciting. You, you said something about how, uh, in that quote, about how uh, there was this bringing together of occultisms, what was it, occultisms? Um, Worldview of correspondences. That's right. And... So I like the idea of occultism's correspondences with this sort of surreal ecology, because I can't really think of any better example of my relationship with my husband than those two. Um, and, and my husband is an artist and uh, a musician and genderqueer. And so we, we feed off of each other a lot, but they are also, you know, far more into, I don't know if they would frame it as occultism per se, but uh, the sort of more spooky side of life, um, correspondences, uh, they're much more, much more spiritual person than I am. And we've been together for almost a decade now. And uh, when we first got together, I was very raised an atheist, like not everything that was sort of spiritual and religious was looked down upon. And since I've been with my partner, uh, there has been introduced to me through them this register of, well, there are rituals and things in the world that, you know, we might not understand, but that can let give much more richness to our lives. And so that has become part of my worldview as well. And then to kind of pair that with surrealism and ecology is, is really, I mean, it's exciting. And I think that's just how we kind of function. But as far as like how this feeds into the logic of identity and, and breaking those things down, as you were saying that, it would, I, think, I think when I was thinking that nature might not be trans in my head anymore, that's kind of thinking about trans as this static category in, that, in how it's come to be understood in the mainstream. And so as that has become more that has become louder in, in my brain and in my reading day to day. I've, I've felt less compelled by that comparison, perhaps because it feels too grounded in, in the sort of real, you know, material. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's, that the real is like, or that the surreal and the material are separate. 
mm-hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because, and this is something that I'm still sort of working out. It's not like I can see it ahead in my, in my, what I want to be writing about is a lot more about materials and like specifically making things and crafting things, because I think that is also aligned with, with a trans subjectivity, um, this desire to craft and make things in your body, but also art and, and, and specific things like, like I'm a quilter. So I make, I make quilts and blankets and, you know, working with textiles is really exciting to me. And so I haven't quite found the way in which that other part of my brain, the part that wants to kind of experiment with narrative and metaphor and story fits into the the part with the material. Like, I think those are still trying to find ways to come together, but, um, as far as like, is surrealism closer to the real than, than realism? Is that kind of how you were saying it? I think that's true. I mean, I think for, for trans people, the way that we live our lives is so, sometimes you need magic and surrealism to make the feeling recognizable to people who aren't trans, right? Because there is so much different in the, in the kind of patterns of our lives, you know, we don't, many of us, myself included, we don't uh, have our, our kind of life experiences in the same order as, as cis people tend to do, or at least most, most cis people in terms of having a second puberty or um, not having kids or having kids in a very different roundabout way than, than others would. And so I think messing with these patterns and with the ways in which we live our lives outside of kind of a a heteronormative capitalist framework. Sometimes you need some magic to explain that or some, and I use magic, not because that is something that I, I don't necessarily feel like I write about magic, but for me, it's kind of another way of, I guess, explaining surrealism or just ways in which. Or maybe the fantastic, the fantastical. Sometimes I I feel like the fantastical reaches a bit further um, for like, epic than, than I tend to go because I, I like to, a lot of my stories and, and ideas are grounded in like the mundane and things you can touch, which isn't to say probably someone out there is writing like a very mundane fantasy that would be amazing to read. I just don't know of it yet. Um, and magic to me feels a little bit more accessible, I guess, in some ways. Um, you know, I mean, there's like, role-playing games that are, I guess they're centered around fantasy, but magic is like such a, such a key part of those and like magic systems and, and things like that. It's a little bit more malleable, I think, to me in terms of you can just make up whatever magic you want. Whereas fantasy feels a bit more hemmed in by kind of what has come before. Yeah. Before we talk about these stories more directly, I, I wanted to ask you about something you say in, in your Lit, Lit Hub essay entitled How Lou Sullivan's Journals Enrich the History of Trans Literature. In that essay, you say that writing constructs the self and also that when you were 21 and newly out as a gay transgender man, that you started a project of not only transcribing, but also annotating all of your journal entries written since you were 13. So not only engaging with yourself as a girl, you were in a sense rewriting it 
or layering the writing of it with a new overlay of yourself as a 21-year-old man. I was hoping you could talk about that experience for you of writing in conversation with yourself at two different ages from two different genders and how particularly the additive aspect, the annotating, if it does, how it relates to the construction of self through writing. I think that project, well, I know that that project of annotating those early journal entries was really necessary because on the one hand, it, it, you know, let me talk back to this previous version of myself that was often confused about, you know, different ways I was feeling and, and different sexual encounters. And so it was really vital that I go back and kind of talk to that person and answer some of those questions and be like, oh yeah, here's this instance here where this makes a lot more sense now that you understand yourself a little bit better. Yeah, for me, it was definitely a layering. Well, at that point, it was kind of a correction, right? It was like, oh, I need to go back and I need to like correct these instances of, of wrong uh, conceptions of myself in the past. As I've gotten older, I think now I'm more capable of seeing it as a layering. But what is, what is the difference between the correcting of your past narrative versus seeing it as a different sort of layering of, of self? Because I'm a, a gay trans man, a lot of it for me was around the confusion of sexuality and gender identity. You know, when you're 13, 14 years old as a girl and you're attracted to men, but it feels wrong in some way because you're in this other body and it's a very heterosexual experience. Um, I think that's what a lot of the correction was around. And then as I, as I kind of got into my later teens and then was in college at a women's college um, and was suddenly thinking a lot more about my, these feelings I was having in terms of not feeling quite right in this women's space Maybe it was because I was a lesbian, even though that didn't feel right. That was what was making sense in terms of like gender identity and being more butch at the time. And so it was kind of correcting corrections, you know, uh, that I had tried to use, uh, just using the tools that I had at the time to kind of explain myself to myself. And then once I realized, oh, I can be a trans man who likes men, then I was able to kind of go back because so much of my my early 20s was spent wondering why I was such a bad lesbian and why I was so terrible at it uh, and why it just never felt that right for me. Um, In retrospect, you know, that's because I I wasn't one and because uh, this same-sex desire was coming from a very different place of, of, and not being embodied in that place yet, I just wasn't able to access it. And, you know, that's, that's an older, I mean, there's a lot of things and, and stories about people who come out as trans and then change, like they're, as they're on hormones and stuff, they change their sexuality. It, it alters, you know, a lot about you and, and the way you feel about yourself, especially in relationship to others and sexually. And, but I think some of that has been miscategorized as, well, you know, maybe this person said they liked women before, but they weren't 
quite in the right uh, body yet. And so they just didn't know yet. So I think when I, I mean corrections, that's kind of. Yeah. Well, this, this is a perfect lead into the question I wanted to ask you about this. Thinking about corrections versus now seeing things as layering of identity. Um, when I think of, of the notion of writing, constructing the self, um, and you say in several places that through the process of writing this book, your own sense of self and of what trans means has changed. Um, I've sort of constructed my own narrative around w- how it has changed um, through my experience of reading the book. I'm just going to put it forth to have it rejected or embraced or modified. Um, because the book opens with a protagonist who is in the middle of transitioning, but he puts his hormone treatments on pause when he decides he'd like to have a child and give birth to that child first. Ultimately, he gives birth not to a human infant, but to a cocoon, to the literal physical embodiment of both indeterminacy, since we can't see inside, and also of metamorphosis in action. So in a sense, this man has given birth to a transition itself. Um, Last weekend, there was a New York Times op-ed by a trans man, Thomas Page McBee, called My Decade of American Manhood where he said he's learning to tell stories that didn't begin with the idea of being born in the wrong body. And he said, quote, when I left my doctor's office that June day in 2011, trans visibility was still a nascent strategy in the struggle for our civil rights. The prevailing advice to trans men on hormone replacement therapy was to focus on passing as cisgender men, even if that meant leaving your past behind. According to the myopic logic, being trans was not its own identity so much as a swift journey between two gender poles. And it's this last part, McBee's pushback against the narrative of transness being a journey between two poles rather than an identity in its own terms, that made me wonder if this was how you had changed through the writing from seeing yourself as moving from female to male to now seeing yourself differently Because in your nonfiction, I think of you when you describe adjusting your hormones and then suddenly finding yourself, to your alarm, menstruating when you had stopped a long time ago. And your first reaction is, is, is alarm. But then you question that. You question the imposition of sort of a forward linearity rather than a moving around differently within time and within identity. And in this collection, characters sometimes have three or four different transitions. Others move cyclically or seasonally between genders. And others move into one and then later move back into the previous one. Yeah, I I read that that piece by McBee um, as well, which was kind of surreal because it was uh, followed very closely my own, you know, timeline. And my dad sent me that article in an email, so, you know, and I think, I, I think, yes, I think that that is a, a good way to describe kind of how my idea of my own transition and trans as a larger concept changed while writing that book is, is, you know, before, probably in line, before writing that book, I did identify more as female to male, that motion uh, and now that's definitely not 
a marker that I use, but it's also not a marker that's used as much in the culture at large. Uh, and you don't hear that language as often anymore, FTM or MTF. Uh, and I think, I mean, the reason that I don't use it anymore is because I have been thinking of it much more as a layering. And by layering, I mean that like, once I came out to myself and, and started taking hormones and, and was able to pass as a cis man, I was much more comfortable accessing my own femininity, uh, which, you know, as, as a gay man, as is something, you know, an effeminate gay man was something that felt very powerful to me. And so that is kind of the layering that I mean, rather than the piece you're talking about, the climate of gender in which I go and talk about how uh, I started menstruating again after a change in hormones and that was really kind of traumatic. That still feels very true. So there is like a line kind of, it's, it's not that I, for me personally, it's not that I uh, feel like I can just move to different categories kind of at the, uh, same time and still maintain like a, a core, a central core of who I am. It's more that it's all of these things at once kind of, um, and that there is meaning in having been a woman and then having been a man um, or being a man now and having that history and that understanding. However, I'll also say that as I get older, that that experience of having been a woman is is much farther away and uh i feel it much less it's much less present uh now than it than it used to be and um which is something that like worries me and uh i don't know if i want to like go back and and think about those past experiences rather than move forward and try to find other ways of of engaging with with uh, womanhood in those ways, with femininity, I think is kind of more where I'm coming at it from. Because um, for for a while, I was sort of thinking that oh, you know, I have some claim to talking about these things as well because I've been a woman and, and I can talk about you know the certain feelings of being discriminated against as uh, for being a woman or in a man's space and that kind of thing. And, you know, I went again, went to Mount Holyoke. So there's a lot of kind of trying to uh, make young women feel empowered to take up space and to, to kind of uh, in a man's, in a man's world, right. Is really the, the history there. However, I think for me, and for many trans men, there's there's still some reckoning left that we have to do and that I have to do in the sense of, but I really am not a woman and my lived experience now is, is so different that there's maybe still like a chip on our shoulders of having had this past. It's, it's kind of, and I'm thinking a lot now too of, of the conversations that are happening more prevalently in the UK where trans women have been like mercilessly attacked in the press and in the broader conversation about like, you know, oh, well, they are, they are men. They don't, they don't really know what it's like to be a woman and to have to face all these obstacles because of 
their quote unquote maleness, right? And it's really ugly. And I think there's a connection between that and those sort of ways in which trans men have been sort of taught to uphold their own femininity as an important aspect of masculinity, almost to wield it like in the service of patriarchy and like, oh, we are these men, however, we used to be women, therefore we're, we're kind of able to occupy these two locations at the same time. I don't really think that's true in a way. Um, and, and it can lead to some, you know, really <laughs> bizarrely twisted up trans misogyny, um, this kind of different positionings we have hold of our own, of our own pasts. Uh, I see it play out online a lot and, and people get hurt and it's not, uh, not good. So it's something that I'm still thinking about in terms of myself and, and where, where I can value and, and prioritize and feel comfortable in femininity. I don't want to give it up, but it's something I, I, I also hold on to loosely, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to hear a little bit of from the book. Could we hear the opening of, of the opening story? This is the beginning of In Kind. After he gave birth at the hospital, they wrapped up the cocoon, the size of a loaf of bread, still damp from being inside him, and told Nathan to keep an eye on it, to give it fluids, that this happens sometimes, and they told him not to tell anyone. For the first 24 hours, he watched it from the corner of his bedroom. He lay it down inside a shoebox, unable to bring himself to put the cocoon in the crib. He could have sworn he saw it twitch. He put his face close to the opaque carapace, thinking he could glimpse some fingers or the struts that gave the wings their shape, but it was impossible to tell what was inside the murky suit. He thought the hospital had tricked him, that when they saw his shape laid out on the table, the scars on his wrists, the longer scars on his chest, they decided he couldn't be trusted with the fresh canvas of a new person, so they gave him this instead. And then the thought occurred to him that this was the only thing that made sense coming out of his body, a nondescript brick, a game of wait and see. Dot had seen her son in person only three times since learning over the phone about Nathan's desire to live as a man. The pronouncement arrived following a five-year period of silence unexplained by either party, and yet a muting that both had adhered to with a monkish fervor. Each subsequent meeting was a cause to scan his body for changes, while Nathan squirmed like the flatworms he'd dissected in high school biology, wriggling in anticipation of the knife on the glass. Dot did not turn out to be the overly nosy mother he'd been warned of on message boards, nor did she appear squeamish when he explained the process of his weekly injection to her over brunch. She observed him coolly, like a gardener monitoring the progress of a patch of summer squash. Not a prize vegetable, but one valued for its high nutrient density that would freeze well for winter. As the only child of a single mother, Nathan had been relatively certain that Dot couldn't afford to cut him off completely. Even though they weren't close, she would need him later on. Already her back throbbed during her rounds as a nurse in the ICU. It was at their fourth meeting as mother and son that Nathan gathered the courage to tell Dot about his plans to become a parent. 
She sat expressionless as he ran out of breath, explaining that he didn't want to wait to find the right person, and even if he did, what if they didn't have the same desire? He'd considered adoption, but when he discovered the extensive background check and social service interviews he'd have to go through, he knew the likelihood of his being approved to be a parent by the government was dim at best. Given that most states wanted their families to parcel out mothers and fathers into different bodies. So you'll have it yourself, said Dot. Nathan flinched. He wished she hadn't called his unborn child it. True, the baby was still a hypothetical, but she might have said the baby or a child. But he let it slide. Perhaps he was simply oversensitive ever since the time his mother, flustered in the crush of traffic and without any cash, had called him it to the toll booth operator. Yes, said Nathan, I've still got all the parts. Once I start menstruating again, it could be a matter of weeks. Why would you want to be pregnant? Have you been listening? I don't want to exactly. The thought of pregnancy filled Nathan with dread, but he was going to do it because it was the only way. For his whole life, he'd felt like the corks in one of those coffee tables compressed under glass, a smooth surface, but the contents under pressure. And he wanted to be something, to do something, explosive, something to break the glass. But if he'd said this aloud, Dot would have asked why wasn't his first transformation enough? And if he was going to be a mother, then why had he transformed at all? And then he wouldn't be able to do anything except leave lunch, hungry and full of adrenaline. Nobody likes being pregnant, she said, leaning over and giving him a pat on his clasped hands. You'll endure it just like anybody else. Nathan understood this offering of tacit approval and wanted to know if this meant he could ask her about her own pregnancy. What had worried her? What strange foods did she crave? And did she eat them in bed or in the tub? But Dot snapped closed her pocketbook. The waiter came with the signature copy and the moment dissolved. She put on a tight-lipped smile as she tipped 10%. And in the waning minutes of their fourth meeting, she collected her detritus from among the empty plates. Phone, compact, credit card, purse. Until she was a self-sufficient planet once more, with her own center of gravity, no longer feeling the destabilizing pull of the man who used to be her daughter. As soon as they rose and walked away from the patio table, a flock of tiny sparrows took it over chattering softly as they hopped from chair back to tabletop for the leftover crumbs of bruschetta. They reminded Nathan of his mother's birds, who showed up daily at the feeders outside her kitchen window. Dot refilled the feeders every day, cigarette gripped in one hand as she made sure the large metal spinning discs were firmly in place to keep the squirrels away, even though they only made the squirrels work smarter for their share. She kept the bags of sunflower seeds and millet in the garage, where it smelled of musty seed and corn in aluminum trash cans. And when he was younger, Nathan would sneak out and sink his arm elbow deep in the seed just to feel the softness, to feel the way it sucked him in and held him. As a woman, he'd been considered loud, boisterous, brash, sometimes obnoxiously so, the class clown and the goofball on teams and at sleepovers. But as a man, he was reserved, bookish, almost too private and buttoned up. Nathan didn't feel he'd changed much going from one to the other, 
only that the yardstick had moved. What Nathan had had to do in order to have a child of his own was arrest metamorphosis, press rewind for a short while, as long as it took to start bleeding again. Then it was relatively straightforward, like any other pregnancy, only as soon as the baby was out of him, he'd be back on testosterone. But now he was shaken by how quickly it had all happened. He'd stockpiled vials of the viscous liquid, clear and slow to move around the tiny bottle in his medicine cabinet next to a syringe, a carrot on a stick comforting with its presence with the option. So he wouldn't have to go back through the rigmarole of therapists and letters and gee doc, I really have felt like a man my whole life when really he didn't know who really knew. It had relieved him then, but now he scanned the list of indecipherable compounds, the only thing he'd ever injected into his body. And he wondered, he hated wondering, but it was hard not to look at the cocoon on the other side of the room and keep at bay the thoughts of pod people. Been listening to Callum Angus read from his debut story collection, A Natural History of Transition from Autonomy Press. So one of the coolest things about preparing for today for me was going on your book tour um, as a Cal Angus groupie, essentially. And I got to see you in conversation with really dynamic, iconic trans writers and thinkers, including Andrea Lawlor, Tori Peters, and Corrine Manning, among others. Um, both Andrea and Tori commented on not seeing a trans work of literature quite like yours before. Andrea saying that it seemed you were both writing for trans people, but somehow also keeping the work welcoming and accessible. And Tori mentioning not ever seeing nature-based trans writing like this, that you were revolutionizing nature writing the way Zabald transformed travel writing, and that instead of writing about transness, you were writing through a trans lens. And Tori also brought up Joanna Russ and Russ's thoughts on the stages of, of minority literature going through how they evolve. Um, so in stage one of a minority literature, in, in Tori's formulation of Joanna Russ's theory, uh, you say, or the writer says, we are just like you. In stage two, fuck you, we are nothing like you. In stage three, Actually, we have nothing to do with you. We can exist without you. But Tori adds a fourth where the minority literature eventually comes back to deeply influence the mainstream, that ultimately the center of the culture eventually can only see themselves through terms that have been defined on the margins. So the, the way, for instance, whiteness is defined by terms developed, developed through black scholarship or how straight people understand themselves through the language of queer theory. And she wonders in relation to your book, I think, but also more generally, what is going to happen when trans thought becomes inseparable from a mainstream's understanding of itself? As part of this question, that isn't yet a question to you. Um, I wanted to add my experience as a cis reader um, because I notice like the mother in the story you just read an excerpt of, a mother who is navigating her daughter's transition to becoming a man, where that transition is being stopped for a pregnancy and a pregnancy that results in a grandchild that isn't human. It feels like in several stories, you're, you're modeling a form of love 
for your trans characters by your secondary cis characters, what love could look like. I believe it is this story where the mother says, I don't have to understand you to love you. But I also think of the story, Rock Jenny, where Jenny, as a young teen, begins to live as a boy and later on lives as a girl again, but then begins to transform into a rock and then a mountainside and eventually the moon. And the mother, who's a geologist, I think finds her daughter's stage as a mountain, particularly legible, opens up a gift shop and a cafe at the foot of her, her uh, child's mountainside. Um, but even that comfort of familiarity is ultimately disrupted. With each of these stages of change for Jenny, their lover or parents or friends and Jenny herself experience fear and confusion now that the terms of their relationship have been interrupted in a way. But it feels like your cis characters, while they're not changing externally, are often going through transformations and metamorphoses internally, expanding their capacities for love beyond what they thought love could look like. And when I'm thinking of all this, the comments of your trans writer conversationalists who say your book doesn't seem written to bring a cis audience up to speed. And this cis reader who nevertheless feels brought along in some way. I wonder if you think of audience when you're writing and if you're writing toward a certain audience, uh, who? Yeah, I think in, and I was thinking about Dot, the mother from the first story, and every time I go back and, and read from that story, I'm reminded that I'm always sort of writing right on the edge of for trans people or for cis people. And it kind of goes back and forth because while I agree with you that there the many of the cis characters in this book are experiencing expansions of kind of what it means to understand themselves or this person they love and how to love them. Uh, without understanding them. I think also the trans characters are learning something from the cis characters as well uh, in terms of like Dot is not your stereotypical mother. You know, she's not a very feminine person. Uh, she kind of has some hard edges around her. She's quite aggressive. She takes charge of like this doctor's appointment with her son later on in the story. And um, is perhaps modeled somewhat on, on my own mother, uh, who I've written about before as, as being a very, uh, aggressive in a, in a, I say in a fond way, <laughs> she's an aggressive person, her, makes her presence felt, uh, is often, um, taking charge of a situation and using sometimes femininity to kind of soften those edges so that, uh, you know, that's how she's navigated in the world. And that's how I kind of understand Dot. And I think I see Nathan seeing that in this story and sort of coming to understand a little bit more the gender travels that his own mother has gone through as a cis person. Um, and so I am writing for, for trans people in that sense that maybe I'm trying to expand for them the places they can look to to find themselves and to find uh I, I don't think it's just trans people who have a a claim on 
you know, what it means to navigate gender in these ways. Uh, my life is full of many cis women who have lived lives very untraditionally in terms of how they present their gender to the world and, and men who also, cis men who also uh, live outside of the norm of what it means to be a man. And so I think in that story in particular, that's kind of who I'm writing for is, is two trans people as they look at kind of their cis family members. And I think when you first come out as trans and, and certainly when I first come, came out as trans, there was a real tendency to want to push back like you were saying in the, the fuck you or nothing like you, right? Uh, formulation of, of minority literatures. Uh, and then as, as a writer, I'm always trying to kind of challenge myself in, in finding more complicated registers in all of my characters, whether they're cis or trans. Uh, and that experience generally leads me down this path of, of, um, of we can see ourselves in you too. Uh, like, like, don't just presume like, and so maybe saying to cis readers, like, you can be a model for us as well. Uh, in, in, and maybe that's kind of what happens when transness becomes more mainstream or trans literature becomes more mainstream. And that's kind of what Tori Peters is doing in, in her book, Detransition Baby, right? Um, which she dedicates to divorced women and, and kind of seeing uh, divorced women and trans women as sharing something in common of, of having their idea of self and what it means to be a woman exploded by, by a large uh, narrative rupturing event. Uh, transition on the one hand and and divorce on the other hand yeah. Um, so so yeah I think we are seeing that more and in in this story in particular I, I wouldn't say I'm writing for one or the other person uh, yeah and I'll just add that you know I, I but I do think about my own audience and who I'm writing to in terms of as, as I try to navigate like nature writing and writing for, for trans readers, and especially in my role as an editor, that's something I'm always thinking about with the, with the journal Smoke and Mold. Well, let me, let me ask you about that, because the narrative that I've seen you put forth is that you were trying to uh, sell or publish, I should say, you're trying to publish a novel for, uh, for a while, and were not um, succeeding. And that part of the impetus of starting your journal was um, to demonstrate that there is an audience for the type of writing you do. And I, I, I'm curious if you could talk about that, about uh, stepping away from the submission process around the novel. Obviously, you've then also um, pivoted to doing the short story collection, but you also demonstrated... Um, a community of readers that are hungry for a certain type of writing. Can you, can you talk about smoke and mold in relationship to your, your sort of writing trajectory in that way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I've been thinking that it's probably likely that many small literary journals are started in this way from a frustration of a person or a group of people who, who have trouble getting published and, and, but believe quite strongly that there is, is an appetite for that out there. Um, 
and and so the novel that I was shopping around, which still exists, but it's in a drawer and it's probably will probably stay there for for a long time now. Uh, I don't see myself going back to it right now, but um, it was very much a novel that was about two trans men navigating their relationship to themselves and to nature on the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And so it dealt with a lot of the same themes around nature and um, also like westward expansion and and, uh, these themes of of transition as well. And I'll just, as an aside, I do a lot of asides, so I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, as an aside, um, the more distance I get from that novel, the more I see that I'm kind of glad it didn't come out first because it does feed into this narrative of trans literature as like road trip expanding into the West uh, narrative, which there is quite a quite a um, deep catalog of. And I'm sort of glad that like that wasn't my first entry um, because again, we're talking about like space and exploring unexplored territory. And so there's been some kind of iffy, it, it's easy to reach for that as a white writer, as a white trans writer to reach for that narrative. Um, but I digress. So. Uh, when I put that novel away, I was very much wanting to find the people who were interested in writing about nature from a trans perspective, uh, and also to find the people in the like eco lit community who weren't aware of, of trans writing as something that they should be interested in. Because I think, you know, not only, yes, there are trans people who are interested in writing this stuff, but it is essential to eco-lit to include trans voices because of the ways, I mean, for many, many reasons, because of the ways that we engage with this question of biology and category and identity and names, like those are all such trans things. And they're also such um, like uh, concerns of the nature writing world um, for a very long time. And so I think those two worlds should be coming together more. and yes, my, my writing can exist kind of in the nexus of that, but you know, I, I want to, I, I think that by creating a journal and publishing people who are you know, relatively new writers, also some who are more established, but we publish a lot of like young, younger trans writers who are just starting out. It's exciting to be able to kind of build out a community that has nothing to do with like my work that it just exists out there. It's all moving toward trying to build an audience for this stuff to be legible. So kind of a, a publishing marketplace that will eventually, I hope, see that this is, you know, important stuff beyond that kind of um, trans memoir uh, linear narrative that that has has been, you know, very popular um, and and I think legible for people like agents and editors to sell to the public like that has been very clear but I, I'm hopeful that this other kind of writing will also become much more uh, uh, I don't want to say mainstream but much more you know there there even within it there are many different like literatures as well different genres and styles so. I had two different questions about troubling the linear 
trans narrative. One is a writer's one is a writerly question, and one is more like where does um, your writing fit in your mind, at least uh, within the trans discourse. So the writer question is, um, I think of the short story genre as perhaps having the most normative pressures and expectations on it that people are more tolerant of novels that have digressions or exist in any number of shapes and lengths and formats. But I think that the short story in our imaginations, even as there are countless exceptions to this, it, the, the way people imagine the short story is the Freitag's pyramid of rising action, climax, and denouement. Um, but each of these stories in your collection not only seems to have a different shape, but it seems to have a different internal architecture. And if we think of your assertion that um, maybe trans isn't a linear narrative between two static gender identities, that you're perhaps writing against the logic of identity, I, I wondered how that affects story shape and structure for you. Because it clearly seems to, and I, um, either by happenstance or by design, um, you seem to be... Uh, troubling the 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 way I think most people imagine short stories. Well, I don't know that I agree that um, I don't I don't see short stories as the more normative um, sort of narrative uh, category. I guess I and I I also don't know that I think I don't know that I agree that like a lot of people do because I think the novel is is much has been made much more. Um, popular and consumable and, and certainly from like a, a marketplace standpoint, right? The, the sort of ideas that novels are much easier to sell than short story collections. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. And, uh, and the commercial ones all seem to be 240 pages long. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Um, and so I think there's there's an understanding of like how a novel moves. And yes, there, there will be digressions, like there's an acceptance of that, that 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 will happen. But for the most part, I think the kind of mainstream reading public knows what they're gonna get when they open a novel. Whereas with a collection of short stories, I mean, the, the collections that are most exciting to me are the ones that are, every story is different and every story is doing something completely different. Counter Narratives by John Keane is one of my favorite books and is like kind of a model for this book. And, it's one and, of my favorite books too. Yeah, in many ways. So the, the um, his novella in there, it's like uh, a letter on the trials of the counter-reformation in New Lisbon. Uh, that novella in particular yes. was really influential for me. And... So I think within collections as a whole, but also within individual stories, there has been as much of a, a tradition that that many people I think recognize of of breaking kind of what story can mean and and where it goes and how it gets there. Especially you have you know 10, 12 different beginnings in the story collection. So there are so many different iterations that you can do, at least to me, that seems much more non, non-linear or, or rife with possibility than, than a novel. That's not to say that I'm not gonna go back to the novel because I, I do have plans to, but, um, but, with, but within each story in terms of like the structure of each story and how I see 
that fitting into the idea of nonlinear trans narratives. I think that was very intentional. Um, certainly in, in kind, the story that I read from, um, that in particular is split up across, you know, we're, we're jumping back and forth in time. There's chunks where we're seeing the, the uh, conception of this child sort of after the child's already been born. And so there's a lot of ways in which that is being literally played out in, in the structure of that story as well. So, so I think in that way, the sort of content is reflected in that form rather than me kind of feeling like I, here's the story, write it down, and then I have to kind of move things around. That's not really how I, I write. I typically tend to, I don't plan how a story shapes out, but the, the sort of form that it takes on the page as I'm writing it is generally the form that stays in the end. And so I think it's kind of uh, just native to that piece. Like it's, it's more influenced by what I'm writing about as opposed to being just, oh, these are like trans stories. Therefore they have to have this kind of. Am I remembering correctly that you choose the length of your stories in advance? Yeah. Yeah. I love Mm -hmm. that. It's so counterintuitive. (laughs) It's fun because it's, you know, provides that one, I don't write with a lot of restrictions, restraints. Like um, I don't plan in advance. I never draft like outlines or anything like that. And so, but I do think it's important in writing to have some kind of restraint to, to fight against. And so for me, that's, that's length. It's like, you know, is this story about a moon snail going to be, what's it going to look like if it's 50 pages long? What's it going to look like if it's four pages long? Um, that type of thing. And, and often I'll see if I can do it. And if it goes a little bit over or under, but usually it ends up right at that spot because I'm thinking about pacing and, and the tension and how that will yeah, go. That's amazing. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about the linear narratives within trans discourse, because you, you, you've talked about how commercially successful they are, um, or how dominant they are, which could speak more to the cis imagination than potentially the trans imagination, but I don't, but I don't know, but I, I wanted to start first with my conversation with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, much of her writing engages with radical queerness as opposed to gay assimilation and normativity. In other words, some gay people want equal rights, but otherwise aspire for assimilation into normative culture, into institutions such as marriage, the nuclear family, and participation in the military, and all of those being signposts of progress, signposts, signposts of receiving full status in society. Matilda, on the other hand, argues that queerness in contrast to being gay, is by its very nature in opposition to this, that queerness demands, I'm paraphrasing here, so my apologies, Matilda, if this is not not good, but um, that queerness demands radical transformation of society, not acceptance into problematic notions of love or family or the imperial military excursions of the United States, that queerness is or should be a threat to these institutions themselves. And I guess I wondered if there was a similar split thinking about linear narratives in the trans and about gender poles in the trans world, because I'm, I'm imagining there are surely people who simply want to be the gender that they've always known they are and to be accepted as such. 
but in every other way to participate uh, in a normative fashion, perhaps. Um, but then when I think of the people who you're on book tour with, of course, who you've chosen to be on book tour with, so it's there's a self-selecting aspect to this, but I don't know where you all fit within the discourse. So like Tori Peters in her book, Detransition Baby, is both trying to reclaim detransitioning from those who use it as a political weapon against trans people but who's also looking at non-normative family structures and cis-trans parenting alliances. And I was, I was listening to Andrea Lawler, whose main protagonist in their novels, a shapeshifter named Paul, whose special talent is that they can be attracted to anyone. And Andrea has said that they've wanted to destabilize Paul's pronouns in the book, which are consistently he, him, so that by the end, though he is still he, you're thinking about Paul's vagina. And so I, I was wondering about that. I was also listening to, for instance, say Paul Preciado, who, who talks about the abolition entirely of the male and female categories and was a student of Derrida and is, talks about um, the necropolitic of the sovereign and connected to the dispensation of death for the male and the biopolitical reproductive factory of of the uterus and the sperm producer and, and around the female and why should we identify as either of these? Um, so I guess this is a long way to ask. Um, do you, do you feel like these framings are central or marginal within, within trans discourse? And I don't mean marginal in terms of um, not significant, but are they on the, are they more on the margins or on the vanguard even of, of um, trans discourse or or reflective more of 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 a, of I don't know want to use mainstream, but I think you might know where I'm getting at. I don't know that I could speak for for trans discourse as a whole. I, I think one of the you know exciting things is that it has splintered, and we're past the point of even saying that there's such a thing as trans lit because there's trans writers writing incredible work in every genre and and form imaginable now, which is a good thing. Um, yeah. But I, I'm glad you brought up Matilda's work because Matilda's work has been formative for me from the very beginning of my transition and the very beginning of my life as a writer. Uh, and I think she continues to be one of the more exciting and challenging writers out there pushing us to think, especially from the queer and trans community, like what we really want out of, out of not just our literature, but our life and our culture. Um, that said, you know, I, I think about what has happened with, with queer as a label and a way of approaching life. And it, it feels like that, that battle has largely been lost. Like it has been assimilated to the point of no return, uh, which has negative and positive aspects to it. Um, you know, it, it does lose, we, we lost something in, in losing kind of that model of life and it can still be remembered and it can still be kind of idealized, but we also, gave something at the same time um, to kind of the, the culture at large. And I do, I, I like also that you brought up, you know, the fact that there are 
trans people who just want to transition and live their lives. And that's true. And I, you know, even though I don't, I don't fall under that category, obviously, but when I was first coming out, it was very much like that McBee piece you were pointing to being stealth was the option that was much more prevalent than it is now. Um, now the conversation is all about visibility and, and you know being visible, which we are learning is not always a good thing, especially for trans people who don't fit, who don't pass, or who don't you know fit a particular mold. Trans people of color, it's very dangerous to be visible in many situations. Um, I try not to subscribe to any exact picture of like what revolution looks like in terms of literature, culture, or politics, because there are always going to be people who want to just live their lives. And, you know, it, it's, that's just a reality. And I don't think it's a bad thing, like, to not want to be engaged in that. And so I'll never, I'll never quite um, side with the side that, that it's, it's a terrible thing that, you know, this has become something from the queer community or the trans community has become mainstream or or has lost some of its edge of being you know not as radical as it once used to be or it's been co-opted by by uh cis uh people because i think there's still a very very important cognitive dissonance in that fight for being accepted and also wanting to stay separate I think about this a lot in terms of preservation and display because I write a lot about museums and think a lot about natural history museums, but museums at large. And, and normally I'm writing about them in terms of you know their, their interactions with uh, indigenous cultures or with um, propping up categories like gender and uh, race as well at, around the globe. But I think there's something very universal and deep about this, this dichotomy of preservation versus display, always wanting, and you can think of it as self-preservation if you want, but wanting to hold on to something that is so dear, whether it's to protect yourself against violence or to hide yourself or just to keep something good for, for yourself versus wanting to be seen and known in the world um, for what you really are, uh, wanting to find others who are like you in, in that different kind of way. Uh, and those two things are intention, it's, it's irrevocable. They're going to be intention. And so I think I see that as kind of the main uh, challenge yeah. <laughs> to sort of navigate. Yeah. Well, let's stay with this question of museums and classification and categories it's another it's a way into the way you engage with science at large too also i think but i'm again i'm thinking of an overlap between you and ricky Ducournay, with regards to the fascination around naming the power of naming and the dangers of naming i'm thinking of in ricky's work it goes there's an engagement a lot with adam in the garden naming the creatures of the world but also the cabinets of curiosity in the way colonial scientists would collect specimens and display them. And sometimes those specimens were even human beings. Um, in a natural history of transition, we have the title story 
which involves a museum and the act of collecting things for the museum. And it's probably the story that goes most in the direction of horror. And we have Archipelago, where the boy in the forest with his pet caterpillar named Cocksucker creates little dioramas of things he collects with perhaps a more innocent relationship to the impulse of collecting. But even here, the, the human desire is, which I think we all probably recognize, to lift things out of their place and place them again in a representation of, of where they're from, to see them but abstracted um, as, looked by the as looked at by the person. Um, even though you didn't pursue this as a nonfiction book, you still use the title, as you referenced earlier in the conversation, that evokes something of the nonfiction world, as if we're going to read a scientific guide or a scientific anthropological guide. But it's very clear that you're also, at least to me, it's very clear that you're also critiquing this sort of guide and critiquing perhaps the legacy of a certain type of scientific classification. So maybe we could start there with you're, you're spending a little more time with your engagement with the human impulse to collect, name, and categorize under supposedly or purportedly the, um, the gathering of scientific knowledge and how the title is working. And if it is partially critique, how so? It is intended as a critique of that kind of document or text that's that's produced out of these very often voyages or explorations into unknown territory by by uh naturalists of the you know anywhere from the 17th to 20th century really uh and writing down what they've collected or stolen from other places around the world bringing them back categorizing them putting them into into some kind of lexicon of like what the new world quote unquote can can is going to mean later on down the line for western ideas of what like nature and 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 uh what that can contain um but i think i think that with the title a natural history of transition i mean the irony is you can't really have a natural history of transition because the at least in transition in the way that I think of it is a it's unpin downable as we've been talking about it's it's both a movement and in space and time and it's also not static it can retread some of the same ground it's been over before whereas natural history is really obsessed with taxonomy and classification and pinning things down with in uh, in a, a dichotomous key or in um, a cabinet like of, of display. So those two things, again, are, are intention. They're, they're kind of pulling at each other within that title. So I think that is, is important to this collection, which does have several stories involving these different types of collection. Um, and in that story, Archipelago, the boy whose name is Monty, he he has the predisposition to collect things and, and make it, he wants to make his own small museum of, of natural curiosities that he's found on his walks. Uh, but there's a 
I think it's tempting to read that as as kind of a positive representation of of that sort of collecting, but there are hints in that story of the fact that this is, even though it's a child doing it, it's perhaps still contains some darker side of the wish to put the world in order and make it make sense uh, at the expense of closing off other options, I guess. Um, as opposed to the the final story, which is again more straightforward horror, um, but also features a, a natural history museum again by an individual created by an individual who's not a professional curator or or anything, um, and that particular collection becomes the setting of this sort of otherworldly transformation, breaking out of the bounds of what they, I mean, not even able to be classified in something not seen before. Uh, I think in that story, transition is actually a bit of a, a red herring because in, in my mind, uh, this, this narrator travels back to his hometown and sees this museum of very strange otherworldly objects. And then all around him, the people who he's grown up with and including, uh, well, perhaps including family members and, and close friends begin to grow eyes all over their bodies is kind of the final progression of this. And that story taking place in kind of a facsimile of my hometown and a very rural part of upstate New York, um, even though it's a trans narrator, it's really about race and this kind of idle watching that takes place in a very rural white town. And there are hints throughout the story of kind of moments of, you know, you see a, a family who is not white stopped at the Canadian border and they're having their, their van taken apart and being explored and they just drive by. And, and that's, you know, that's not mentioned really ever again in the story. And so um, while the narrator doesn't, perhaps doesn't realize it exactly, this watchingness and this this tendency to watch atrocity unfold at a distance is really the plague that I think is is being visited upon those people in that town. You know, they're becoming overtaken by seeing, they become seeing. And I think that is very aligned with what can happen when collecting and identifying and but but staying removed from kind of the ways in which these objects uh, have other resonances in the world can also become a sort of deadly watching yeah i love that and i love the way you're bringing a sinister quality to archipelago i mean there's sinister aspects to what happens to monty by others but the that this impulse that might seem innocent and simple and what it's closing off, because you also write about this in nonfiction. So you mentioned the dichotomous key, and you have the piece dichotomous about Linnaeus, who systematizes um, the way we identify different species, um, which was not systematized before. It was much more observational and perhaps allowed for quite a few other uh, elements to exist, because this is a this key is basically a, a branching system of binaries. Uh, you can only go on one branch or the other until you end up with a positive category. Um, but you also have this other piece, 
not related to this, but also about categories, the order of identity, uh, where you sort of look at what the difference is between calling yourself a trans white man or a white trans man and why you why you choose one formulation or framing over the other. And I was I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit, what that means for you before we go into some of the uh, other ways other than the last story that you engage with whiteness in, uh, in the collection. Yeah. Yeah. And that is an older essay. Um, and so I, I have changed a little bit in the ways that I think about that identity. Um, you know, at the time this was written around 2015 or 14, something like that. Uh, which is a very, feels like such a long time ago now. Um, and I think if you're thinking about whiteness hasn't changed since then, then uh, you maybe have some reevaluation to do. Um, but at the time, um, I was very often treated with a lot of respect and sort of awe by cis colleagues and, and friends when they found out I was a trans man. Um, as if this accorded me some kind of really special uh, experience in the world, hardship in the world, um, some minority status deserving of special treatment, often in a, in a more important sense than, say, some of my other writer friends and colleagues who were not trans, but who were Black or uh, people of color, uh, other identities that often had it much more difficult in the world than I did as a as a cis passing white trans man and so I think with that piece I was sort of trying to parse out uh the privileges that being a white man affords me at the same time as being trans it, it you know I and this is just a personal kind of uh, hierarchy in terms of my identifiers because I am a, come from a middle-class background and am white. And, and so my life has been pretty easy in terms of, I haven't had to face a lot of discrimination uh, or, or hardship as a result of being trans. However, I think while I, I I do think a lot about whiteness as, and I am a white person. These days I'm a little bit more hesitant to claim the white as a like capital W affirming identity. Like I am, a, I am white as like an identity marker because I think as we have seen in the last several years, there is a loud vocal component of alt-right and, and fascist groups that want to reclaim white as a identity, right? And as this kind of reaction to identity politics while saying like, okay, you guys are, are black and reverse racism and all this stuff. Uh, and so that is something that I think you have to, you have to understand as a white person that you are white, but you can't, uh, love it in the same way because whiteness as is a is a construct that has changed over time and and you know it's it's made up um but it is not made up in the in the uh 
ways in which it functions in the world and the the consequences that come from it. So I do still think a lot about these things. If I my my identity and the way I move in the world as a trans man and as a white man. Um, but in that piece in particular, where I was thinking more about like, am I a trans white man or a white trans man? I think it was useful at the time, but I don't know that that's as, doesn't matter as much anymore because they're the, the playing field has changed a little bit. Yeah. Well, I love, I, I have to say, I love that. I keep bringing up these, these, uh, writings of yours and and you've changed since them i think that's just it's because that's very i think that's very much as i mentioned earlier it's also the sense in the stories too uh of um at uh, of constant adaptation and uh reevaluation i i think that's true of a lot of trans writers and i think you know for me it's, it's one of the reasons i was like a little nervous or hesitant to do an interview like this because I am always re-looking, re-inspecting at my own opinions and ideas about writing and politics and the world. And so I am hesitant sometimes to set them down either on paper or in audio form for how they will change later on. And I, I think I think that's something that a lot of trans writers confront sooner than many other writers um just as a result of of you know how we've already seen ourselves change and for me personally writing was such a part of of coming to understand myself as a as a person and as a trans person going back and annotating those those journals like you said earlier and and so it's just this constant kind of uh or of change well you've created work for yourself in five years when you're gonna have to say on tour, when I was talking on Between the Covers, I used to believe, and dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at the same time, being able to change one's mind is one of the qualities I admire most in people or, or thinkers, um, because it's not easy to do. And, and if I can, when I find like a friend or a writer who is changing over time and constantly reevaluating themselves. That's someone that I want to, to keep reading for a long time. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's stay with this question of, of whiteness in particular, not as not around taxonomy. Um, but you engage, I think most head on with it in, in one of the longer stories, winter of men. Um, this story felt for me, it had resonances with Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, Left Hand of Darkness, with your characters transforming from one gender to another in the fall and, and from that gender to the one before in the spring. But also the short story of hers, The one, the Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which it's a moral cautionary tale about society built on the hidden away suffering of someone who's completely otherized. But this story, even with all of its fantastical elements, is not only the most deeply researched, but also the one most deeply tied to real colonial history and real colonial figures, um, Lydia Longley and others. Uh, and I was hoping you could talk to us about a lot of things about this story, actually. Why, why you chose this setting and time period um, and these real people and how you braided the real history with a fantastical 
story um, and what considerations that involved. And it's also, I mean, it's a story that would, would be resonant, I think, being read at any time in, in North American history since settlers have arrived. But also I'm thinking about the, the graves of the residential schools in Canada just in the last month. And, and here we're seeing in your story the Marguerite's Indian School as well. Um, talk to us about the winter of men. It seems, it seems like that, um, I don't want to say it's the most ambitious, but it, to me, I'm imagining it, it required the most amount of moving elements to synthesize somehow. It seems like quite a, a very successful, but also quite a feat. Well, I, I don't know if it's very successful and I will come back to that, but this is the story in the collection that I was latest to understanding uh, after it was finished, um, which I felt very strange about for a long time. And then recently I was going back and reading some criticism about uh, Norbasi Phillips' first or very early book, She Tried Her Tongue, and how her understanding of that book changed vastly over time. So. So I feel a little less bad that I have, have come late to understanding this story. But the choosing the setting and the time period was a result that came from my novel, the novel that I was trying to get published several years ago, which took place on a border. And I find borders really fascinating for obvious reasons because they're these sort of made up lines that are also transition points between uh, two different places, different communities. Um, and in that book, I was writing about a border that I had hardly ever visited, um, but that looms very large in, in American contemporary psyche. Um, and so I knew that with this story and sort of unintentionally the collection as a whole, I, I wanted to tread much closer to a border that I was much more familiar with, the, the U.S.-Canadian border. I grew up 20 minutes from it, so it was a very, but it's often portrayed as a, a very benign border um, in comparison to, you know, the, our southern border. Um, and so I knew, well, I'm very familiar with this border, so let's, let's go there and let's see what is here. And, um, I grew up with a very limited, extremely limited understanding of the different indigenous communities and populations that still inhabit that border and whose, whose territory has straddled that border and been divided by it, um, despite the fact that I grew up very close to, to there. So in a lot of ways, there, there are there's sort of very two different worlds that are at least two, I mean, many more, that are lived in the same exact place over top one another without those realities ever coming in contact. Uh, I'm reminded, I've been thinking a lot recently about China Nienville's novel, The City and the City. Yeah, I love, uh, that. I love that novel. Yeah, and and also Renee Gladman's work, um, mm -hmm. Houses of Ravika. And so this idea that like, you know, two places can can overlap at the same time and be lived at the same time. And yet those realities are completely separate. Um, and to me, there was no 
more clear uh, example of that as opposed to kind of these early moments of contact between uh, European colonial settlers and the indigenous people, in this case, the Kamiangahaka or Mohawk people who uh, lived at that period of time around the St. Lawrence River that makes up the border between that part of what is now upstate New York and and Canada. Um, And while while it's still arguably the case today that those realities are are kind of overlapped, I think back then it was very, very evident. And it seemed like to me from reading the history that there was a lot of, there was a lot of constant battle over how these stories were going to be told later on. Um, And that extends to today Uh, going, I went to Montreal and to the Museum of Marguerite Bourgeois and uh, where where the the story of this nun um, and in establishing her convent in old Montreal, then called Vieux Marie, is really valorized and and upheld as this kind of uh, narrative of how uh, French Canadian history is is like a pillar of of Canadian history as a whole and how this country came to be and all of that. And it was interesting to me to also access that story through the narrative of a early American young woman um, who was kidnapped by the Abenaki uh, and and brought up there, not necessarily of her own will, but as she is conceived of in this story, it is an exciting departure from her sort of drudgery of, of Puritan life um, in Massachusetts. But these, these stories of, of kidnappings and raids, quote unquote, by indigenous peoples are still very resonant in Massachusetts and especially rural Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts, where I've spent a lot of, of my life as well. Um, places like historic Deerfield and, and you'll often see sort of monuments to uh, raids on colonial communities that shaped a lot of how these towns think about themselves today as kind of, you know, bastions against the outside world. It's a strange place. Um, but so, so I kind of wanted to use the eyes of someone from that space thrust into this new, um, totally new place to her, you know, she at first she thinks she's in Europe. She doesn't have any conception of of the wider world as a lot of people didn't at that time, Lydia. That is, and um, and so when she's brought to Vie Marie, I, I don't know that I would say my intent was to make like an allegory because we have like a uh, American early American woman, you have Marguerite Bourgeois and Jeanne Lebert, who is a, a recluse, um, who are French settlers. And then you have um, Barbier, who is one of the early indigenous nuns. Um, but very often in writing stories, I will put characters together and, and see what comes from that. And then in the research phase as well, um, one of the most, one of the things that stayed with me the longest from that research were the stone towers that um, Marguerite Bourgeois used as a school for, for uh, Kanyangahaka women. 
trying to educate them in morality and Catholicism and, and teaching them French at the time and trying to make them forget their language. But those, because those towers don't show up at all in the museum. They're never mentioned or brought up. And it's a real trip of a museum. <laughs> There's like, they have a whole room devoted to dioramas, each the size, each about nine inches by nine inches of like shelves of these dioramas that you're walking through that depict with Barbies essentially, um, like early contact and, and wow. the history of this convent. It's really far out. Um, so there's no lack of, no lack of interpretive, you know, skill in the, in this museum. It's quite impressive. However, they never mention these towers. And then when you look up the towers online, uh, it says in the Canadian Register of Historic Places that it was used as a school by Marguerite Bourgeois. And I went to those towers. They're part of a school now, a Catholic school. Um, it's quite hard to imagine them being a school of any kind uh, because they are very <laughs> imposing, uh, no windows, um, incredibly uh, sort of haunted structures in the middle of that city, which has a lot of haunted structures in it. Um, and so that silence became a central one for that story. But I think, and, and I've said before that I, I think a fiction writer should try to write into these silences of history, but I don't know that I always believe that our, our duty is to like make sense of them. I, I don't think the, the goal is to make sense of them. And so that story is at times in tension with itself, I think, uh, in, in ways that I feel it's trying, it's trying to resist telling a good story of like gripping narrative content about this time in history. Because I think when we read stories in that mode, especially about a time like this, like that, uh, we're reading very differently than if we're being challenged by, by uh, different narrative structures or, or, or so on. Um, but, but I think I, so I don't see that story as a huge success, but it is one that I had to write because again, it was going back to these places that I'm very familiar with and, it was asking questions of me as a writer saying, why are you writing this story that I couldn't turn away from? Um, so when you say it's not a huge success, you mean on the, on terms of uh, storytelling? I mean, in the sense that when I set out to write a story like that, in which I'm, I'm really wanting to be thinking a lot about whiteness and colonialism and the role of gender in that, the role of religion in that. I'm always, I'm always failing because so far I've, I've only been able to still tell it with this kind of um, dominant cultural lens of whiteness and, and it's still told from Lydia Longley's point of view. And it's still, there's always this tension of like wanting to tell a story without exoticizing it and without stepping outside of my own um, 
subject position in the world as a, as a white person and as a white writer, and yet still wanting to portray some of this world and some of the ways in which that is a shortcoming. Um, and I, I talked about this a lot with, with uh, one of the readers of that story who is an indigenous writer that I admire very deeply. And one of the things that they were saying was that they could see both sides, like they could see wanting to hear more interiority from Barbier, who is the indigenous nun, uh, getting more of, of her story while at the same time appreciating that it wasn't there, that it wasn't accessed in the way that, that sometimes um, characters of color or indigenous characters have been imagined by white writers, right? Yeah. So that's really fascinating, that tension within you that's reflected in the story itself. Right. We, in your newsletter, you talk about resisting story. You say, I don't believe in the power of story, or rather, I believe in the power of story to do ill. Some might call that propaganda, but I'd respond that it's a much thinner line than most people think between literature and propaganda. Fascism is very, very good at telling stories. Fascism may be integral to the history of storytelling, in fact. And so I rarely set out to tell a good story, though I often try to use the trappings of story to distract or get at something else, which maybe is a little bit of what you're, you're, we're talking about here. Uh, and I want to hear about this in its own right, but I also want to take this discussion of colonialism and whiteness and bring it to, into science and environmentalism. Because there's a strong strain of white supremacy and eco-fascism in the environmental movement. Um, not just the Nazis themselves, who definitely saw themselves as not only cleansing the culture of impurities, but also saw themselves as removing the people who didn't belong to the land or the soil of Germany, whether Jews or Roma or disabled or trans or otherwise. But there was definitely a, an environmental vocabulary and rhetoric to their rhetoric. But come to America and um, Audubon was a slaveholder and Edward Abbey was worried about how the white birth rate was being outpaced by that of other races and explicitly said, am I a racist? I guess I am. I certainly do not wish to live in a society dominated by blacks or Mexicans or Orientals. Look at Africa, Mexico, and Asia. And then the Sierra Club last year, quite belatedly, during the Black Lives Matter protest, finally begun a racial reckoning that isn't entirely welcomed by its members, saying that they've long been, they describe themselves as a mountaineering club for middle and upper class white people that up until the 60s had exclusive membership where applicants of color were screened out. But many of the early board members at the time of John Muir's leadership were eugenicists who were not only anti-immigrant, but wanted to figure out ways to control the population through sterilizing uh, people of color, or disabled, or or simply poor people. Um, so much so that population scientists today, who mostly believe the carrying capacity of the earth of humans is somewhere between one and three billion, never mention population when they're doing their work, uh, because it automatically goes to or very quickly attracts and goes towards a eugenicist uh, argument, even though the entire continent of Africa is something like three or four percent of the of the carbon footprint for the for the globe. 
this is not what you're writing about specifically, but if we were to connect the power of, of story to do ill, to be fascistic, and tie that to ecofascism, one of the stories that all of these groups told was that nature was a sanctuary where humans didn't live, but where humans, mainly white men, went to commune a story that was developed fresh after removing indigenous people from those very same lands. I know you've, you've, you've engaged this, like for instance, with uh, Wanarovich's art. Uh, I think the piece was called water um, that, that um, I think is a counterexample to this notion of, of humanless nature and preserved um, the purity of nature, the impurity of humans but talk to us more about story and fascism. And also, if you have any thoughts about uh, nature as sanctuary uh, versus uh, troubling the logic of the identity between na- nature and human. So the, the idea of resisting story and, and my thinking around that as it relates to fascism and the history of storytelling, that's all very new stuff that I've been thinking about very recently. Whereas the connection, the sort of eco-fascist connection um, to how natural history has been done in service of like nation building and the conception of whiteness is something I've been thinking about much longer. So I'm gonna start there and then work my way toward the resisting story part. So kind of reverse it a bit. I think one of the examples that I, I think about a lot in, in this in, is, and it helps me get at some of these things, is the novel, uh, All the Things We Cannot See. No, All the Light We Cannot See. <laughs> Let me An- start over. Anthony Dorr. Yeah, Anthony Dorr, which is an incredibly readable novel, hugely popular, best-selling novel. I was a bookseller when that book uh, was out in hardcover and they just kept it in hardcover for like ever because mm. they're making so much money. <laughs> I was like, why, why print paperback? People kept coming in and asking for the paperback. And it wasn't there. Um, and that story is a world war II story. Um, and it's, which typically those follow a relatively predictable uh, formulation of these the villains as the Nazis and the good guys as the allies, the, you know, European powers um, to an extent, the U S as well. But uh, that story is told with a heavy emphasis on this, uh, the natural history museum in Paris. Um, My French isn't very good, so I'm not going to try to do the French pronunciation of it, but um, you know, the, the pro, the, one of the protagonists, the young girl, um, sort of holds up in part of the museum, I think, with her, with her, uh, is it her uncle? It's been a little while since I wrote it, but I wrote a piece about it because I think it's very important to thinking about how racism, natural history, and fiction all interact. Because we're given the story of the Nazis occupying Paris and hiding in the sort of alcoves of natural history and and while they're uh, hunkered down and hiding from uh, the Nazis who are trying to kind of 
find them. Uh, they are telling all these stories from the museum about the different objects that are there as some kind of a way to pass the time and and also as a means of sort of, you know, she's a young child. And so as a means of retaining some wonder in the world. But never in that book is it sort of touched on the role that that museum played in, in really giving to the world uh, the tools and stories for you know, looking at bodies of others who are identified and very much othered from a white positioning uh, as specimens, as specimens, right? The, the Venus hot and tot, uh, Bartman, um, Sarcha Bartman, I think is, is her full name, uh, was studied at that museum, who was a woman kidnapped from Africa, who was basically treated as a, a specimen in these, by these natural historians who are trying to establish different um, like species categories for different races of humans towards a very eugenicist goal. Um, and in fact, it's been proved many times uh, that much of the thinking of Hitler and the Nazis and that strain of fascism was lifted directly from European and specifically American natural history museums where eugenicist conferences were very common in taking place in the 1920s. Um, Alice Herlicka was a, a especially prominent naturalist who collected indigenous skulls from graves of, of children uh, to bring back to these museums, the Smithsonian and the American uh, Museum of Natural History as you know, these specimens and as evidence of these differences. And so I found it unacceptable that this natural history museum and really, which stood in for, it's one of the most famous natural history museums in the world. And so it stands in, in a sense, for nature in that book. It's kind of nature versus this fascistic tendency to, to destroy right, and violence. Those were sort of the two poles of that book. And I just found it unacceptable that that was the dichotomy that was being set up there because it was never explicitly, it, it was just using the trappings of a natural history museum as window dressing, basically. And, and when we start to think about nature in that way, that it's just this pretty thing that we can Put into our stories as a kind of fun imaginary or imaginative exercise uh, without looking into the darker recesses of how it's been constructed in our western imagination in service of that very violent tendency to want to destroy the other and want to you know level things and, and make things the same that i think is is particularly a part of fascism, then we have failed in kind of understanding what that connection is and also our place within it. Um, and, and so to connect that to like resisting story, um, because I think, I think that one of the reasons, for a while I wanted to write like a monograph, an academic monograph about natural history museums in fiction 
in novels and how they are portrayed and how they are written. Um, I do not have a PhD and I don't know that I have the rigor to complete a project like that. So I'm not sure it will ever be realized in that sense, though there are other ways that I'm trying to incorporate it into my work. But um, as far as resisting story, you know, a museum, a natural history museum relies so much on story that it makes really good reading material, right? And also you'll see in um, thrillers that take place in natural history museums, uh, Silence of the Lambs doesn't take place there, but there is a, a moment when Clarice goes to a entomologist at, forget if it's the Smithsonian or the, not, uh, or the American Museum, but um, to solve that mystery, you know, she has this moth pupa, I think it is, that was found in one of the victims. And uh, she is, goes to this museum asking these people about the pupa and it ends up that this is a moth very specifically found in one region of the world and it would never be found here. And that's like a clue that helps her solve that murder mystery. And it's so often treated as this bastion of rationality. It's where we go to put everything in order. Um, it's where the unknown and the frightening are made rational. Like the nature slash natural history museums, that's kind of in story their role. And so my project in resisting story, or at least what I wouldn't actually say it's my project because I, as a writer, I don't think I am experimental enough or out there enough. Like I'm still trying to talk to the mainstream in some way. And so I still am trying to like get published and usually to get published, you have to tell a story, a compelling story to be sellable. But it is something that I'm interested in. And I think that the writers that I admire most throughout history are those who are trying to write against that grain mm -hmm. of story, whether it's from a sort of environmental or, or natural history perspective or not, they are trying to not tell a good story, though they may use the trappings of story so that they can speak to others who are outside of it, outside of those stories. Um, this is going to sound weird because he's from a, from a fled from a communist dictatorship, not a fascist one, but Reynaldo Arenas is one of my like huge influences and, and heroes. And uh, he, I think, but when you read his work, it's not, story is like the last thing that he's thinking about. But I, I mean, there's many examples of, of writers who are, who are doing that. It's interesting to think about how science in its own self-regard uh, doesn't think of itself as influenced by story or influenced by culture even. Um, like for instance, I'm thinking it's sort of the inverse of what you describe of Anthony Doerr's book, where it sounds like the natural history museum and nature is the repository of like goodness and the human is the destructive, has the impulse for the destruction. But like, for instance, the primatologist Franz de Waal, who uh, has pretty convincingly proved that our cousin primates have empathy. Yeah. Um, and that, so things like they'll sacrifice their own 
um, personal self-benefit in solidarity with, with another peer who's been denied the thing that they've been offered, for instance. That was met with such immense resistance in the scientific community as dismissed as romanticization or anthropomorphizing that you couldn't, or that you couldn't look at a, a breastfeeding gorilla and say that it's looking tenderly at its uh, child. Um, but you can say that um, you can use as the neutral default, the so-called neutral default, that all creatures are competitive and that their only motivation in the world is to compete in order to um, pass on their genes and that their only mode of, the only way we could describe anything that's happening is through a different mode of trying to pass on one's genes, um, which of course is not neutral to start from that position and very much comes from a Christian overlay on the dominion, human dominion over nature among others that he's had to fight against that we, that how threatening is it to us as humans to have a quality that we call humane um, to be shared with another creature, which science wants to fight against that story. I mean, they don't know that that story is, they don't even realize that the story is embedded until it gets threatened, I think. I'm, rem I'm reminded of a, a book I was reading by a well-known ornithologist, contemporary ornithologist, in, in which he's trying to, his like life's goal and he writes very beautifully about, about these birds. He studied songbirds for his entire life. And often he's studying how do birds learn song? Um, there, and it turns out there are some birds that actually do listen to their parents and learn uh, song, like actually like rhythms and notes of the song and how to do it. And then there are others in whom it is like instinct, right? And, and they're born knowing how to sing that song. And he was instrumental in in discovering this. Uh, and, and yet one of the ways that he did it was he stole baby, baby songbirds from a nest, brought them home with him. And once they hatched, he made them deaf. So he could experiment to see if, what was, what were they going, were they going to say anything or not? And it just made me so emotional, like yeah. to, to, to devote your life to this creature, learning, unraveling how they see the world, how they learn about the world around them. And then you decide to take that away from them in order to find a solution. Uh, something is drastically wrong yeah. with that. Um, and while it may have yielded some insight, I think it lost so much more uh, in, in doing it. And, you know, these, these days there are many uh, writers, yes, but also uh, thinkers, indigenous thinkers who are, who are showing us very clearly that there are other ways of knowing the world and coming to understand it that science has, you know, suppressed for so long. And yet clearly the place that we're in in the world right now with climate change and, and our relationship to the environment uh, science has not necessarily helped us 
uh, and in fact has probably produced just as many um, technologies and things that have contributed to uh, the, the plight we find ourselves in now. And so perhaps <laughs> looking to science is not the solution, but rather finding other ways. I, w- I think we could stay here for another like three hours because I have so much I want to say about like, obviously, like we're really fascinated by the 16-year-old kid at the science fair who's figured out how to uh, develop a bacteria that will eat the plastic in the ocean that shows like human ingenuity rather than just not make any more plastic or um, let some other creature, say a tree, live on its own terms and use its own incredible intelligence to improve the atmosphere. But um, I, I'm scared to go down this rabbit hole with you more right now, but, <laughs> but uh, I do before we end, I want to bring up Gabrielle Bates, who's the reason why we're talking today. She's an amazing poet, also the co-host of one of my favorite poetry podcasts, The Poet Salon. This is what she wrote to me about you. So she's she's speaking to me here. When I think about your general interest in sentence-driven prose and your specific interest in speculative, imaginative fiction that dives into complicated intersections of the human, non-human, the environment, as well as your ambition to read work by writers from traditionally marginalized populations. It's hard for me to imagine you not finding this work rewarding. Also, Cal's ear, when it comes to prose, is just exquisite. I've gotten to hear him read a few times, and both times my brain felt lit up all over by the rhythms. As a poet, it's rare for me to hear prose out loud that sings as dynamically as Cal's does, while also casting a real, a really vivid visual narrative spell, while also making me radically rethink my relationship to gender, sex, the quote-unquote natural world, and so many other things. And this reminds me of the blurb by Garth Greenwell, who also is noticing the music of your syntax. Um, so unsurprisingly, you've been asked about your relationship to poetry, if you write it or have studied it. And for, from what I remember... Despite your language being noticed by poets, you don't have a big background in poetry, as, and, and that isn't part of the explanation of you writing today. But I thought we could take this aspect of your work and have you read the first section of your most syntactically vibrant story, Moonsnail, which also engages with a little-known interest of the poet Gertrude Stein. But before you do, could you just introduce us to Moonsnail in relationship to Stein? and why it captivated you. Uh, And then we can hear um, that first part of it. Yeah, well, and also, hi, Gabby, and thank you. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, Moonsnail, in particular, though, it starts with an epigraph from Stein. um, And at the end, it's kind of revealed that this is about Gertrude Stein. For most of it, you could be excused for not knowing it's about her and, and an imagining of her experience because she spent a year before she left for, for Europe uh, at Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratories in, in Massachusetts, um, or no, in Connecticut. Uh, and I had never heard that. I mean, she was, she was writing, and, and this, is, this was from the book uh, Sister Brother, 
by Brenda Wineapple, um, which is a great biography of Stein in conjunction with her brother, with whom she broke very radically toward the end as they grew older and, and they ended up very, a lot of animosity between them. However, as, as they were growing up, um, they were very, very close and they also went to Woods Hole together um, and did marine biology. We're studying to become marine biologists uh, and Gertrude Stein was out there collecting things from the ocean, bringing them back to look under microscopes, writing very detailed scientific reports about these things. And uh, that captivated me because it seemed like there was a relationship between that and the way in which Stein would later use language to describe things, um, not fish embryos as she was doing at Woods Hole, but other other things, just the way that her prose unwound over the course of her her stories and poems. Um, but so I I was interested in describing and looking at that sort of time in her life using the language in, with kind of an homage of the to the language that she uses, the ways in which she uses language later on. Um, and you know she. I, I will not pretend to understand everything about Gertrude Stein's writing. I'm not a Stein scholar by any means. Um, so sometimes I feel a little, little uh, guilty parachuting into these um, moments in life of, of writers or authors that I don't know everything about. But um, Stein was at this place where she was studying these things. And also she was one of very few women uh, at... Woods Hole at the time. And so this was sort of a meeting of gender and science and language that I found very resonant. Um, and yeah, I think I'll, I'll go into reading it. Okay. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Do you have, do you, do you have any, do you extrapolate anything about her interest specifically in embryology versus, versus just studying fish? Right. Um, well, from what I understand, at that time and still today, embryology is really a starting point for a lot of people who are interested in marine biology and, and many other different um, avenues of, of biology. So I don't know that it was like her choice to, to study that. I think it was a bit more of like, this is where you start is, is learning how organisms a lot of us start looking the same in, in embryos, right? And, and then diverge from there. It's kind of a good learning point, but I think, but it was interesting to me that that, that, that is the case at all and that that was where she was, was coming from. Um, so this is uh, from Moon Snail and there's an epigraph from Gertrude Stein. Science is continuously busy with the complete description of something with ultimately the complete description of anything, with ultimately the complete description of everything. Getting out of the boat was transom. She perched and swung there, balanced on a wave while her classmates watched which way the hinge would swing, up in the air, light as a turn, or down to the sea. A fracturing of light and cold and wet held close to the skin by petticoats, a breaking of camaraderie as the men tried not to laugh, tried to hoist her from the shallow divot in the rocks where she sometime 
might have liked to stay among the anemone mussels and crabs, filled and emptied twice a day at the moon's insistence like her hopes for what she'd see in the viewfinder. Microscopic streamers, embryos smothered under glass, or just a lot of cloudy nothing, which only looked like nothing until a twist of knob crystallized all the unnamed swimmery spinners that occupy a vacant space. Inside the lab is where things unbend and show off. At first she thought she knew the story of birth. Now she realizes how much more there is than blood and cry and doubling. There's the whole before and after, before the bee leaps into being, the quiet energetic egg, translucent limbs in flux, fluttering ghosts of gestures they'll perform on land. In this place where they are at the start of taking the start so seriously, she hadn't expected to be telling a new story each day about life and death, sense and understanding. She wanted to slow down and think more about keratin, limestone, calcium, break it all down piece by piece like a moon snail drilling a hole in the shell of a smaller snail and flooding it with caustic juices before slurping it all out. She would like to do that to the world around her, liquefy until it bleeds together. She walks the path of the Nautilus, exploring its shell through winding streets to the boarding house, always stop, stopping off at the beach. She marvels at the shell, the three by three by three of it, the perfectly stacked whorls, one on top of the other, like china plates on a sideboard. She wants to be inside of its geometry, part of its perfect equation. She can't get inside the embryo sandwiched between strips of glass, but maybe if she thinks hard enough, she can shrink her thoughts to fit, concentrate them like little cubes of bouillon, condensed so more potent. She would keep them that way all the time to have something sharp about her, even when she leaves the shell, something to resist digestion. You've been listening to Calamangus read from the opening part of Moonsnail from his collection, A Natural History of Transition. So what can we expect from you next? <laughs> um, if you know. Oh, I, well, I know. I don't know what order they will appear in is what I've learned. Um, but I have a book, a nonfiction um, manuscript called The Water Years that is sort of meditations on large and small scale changes to the climate without and the climate within myself. Um, and so it's, it's treading some of the same ground and, and looking at transition and climate change in the same breath, um, because those are the two dominant forces of change in my life. And so it makes sense to me to look at them the same. Um, and then beyond, I can talk about that one because that one's finished um, for the most part. Uh, but beyond that, I will be returning to fiction um, at some point and maybe even poetry in the future. There has been some stirrings of that in me in the last few months, um, perhaps in response to people asking me so often if yeah. I'm a poet. Maybe you are. <laughs> maybe it's true. It could be. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you will be. Yeah. It was great having you on the show, Cal. It was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much, David. We're talking today to Cal Mangus about his book, A Natural History of Transition from Autonomy Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.
Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Callum Angus's work can be found at calangus.com, and his journal, Smoke and Mold, can be found at smokeandmold.net. For the bonus audio archive, Cal adds a reading of John Keane's story, Manahatta. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Forrest Gander, Deren Nagrifa, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division. Jacob Valla in the art department. Becky Kramer in publicity. And Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Emre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Emre Lodbrog with Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>